and it's always a joy for me. I'm always a little intimidated to stand here where Michael Easley teaches because he is such a master of exposition. So thank you, and especially on this 4th of July weekend. This is a time when, as Christians, we need to go back and review the influences of the Bible on our national history. Because of all of the nations in the world and of all of the nations that have ever been on this planet, the influence of the Bible has shaped America in an unusual, unique, and dramatic way. And that really goes back to the Puritan migration from 1620 to 1640, when thousands and tens of thousands of the deepest Christian scholars and lawyers and professionals in England were driven out of the land and came to New England, and they established here a spiritual foundation. It was very anti-slavery. It was very pro-scripture. It was based on pulpit ministry and preaching and exposition. And that foundation has made America very unique among the nations of the world, unique in all of the history of the world. And so this is something that we need to be aware of. Now, in the last some years, as you know, that has broken down in many ways. So we pray for a great revival. But I say all of that to say, if you want to know more about the story of the Christian and the biblical influence on the history of our nation for these 250 years and going beyond that, if you go back to the 1700s, then I have a book called 100 Bible Verses That Made America. 100 Bible Verses That Made America. And it tells 100 times when the Bible had a very interesting influence upon either a person or an event in our history. Those books were on sale recently at Cracker Barrel. I don't know if they're still there, but you can get them wherever you buy your books. But this is, I think, important for us as Christians to thank the Lord for our liberty, for the religious liberty we have, for the recent Supreme Court decisions that uh, affirmed our biblical convictions, uh, and to pray that God would send a great revival to our nation. Now, today I want to pick up where um, uh, we've left off the last couple of weeks while Dr. Easley has been away in Matthew chapter 6, and I want to begin with this story. When I read the newspapers, then sometimes the headlines are so grim, I go to the back pages uh, and I look for some interesting story. And there was a lady not long ago in Minnesota who was dying of a brain tumor. She was a wonderful, wonderful Christian. Her grandchildren loved her, and she would play games with them, and she was a very clever lady. And the point, she came to the point in her, her illness where she could no longer communicate except by writing. And then that became very difficult. But as she was about to pass away, she wanted to leave her family, her children, and especially her grandchildren one final message that would be really her legacy, her last words to them. And she asked for an index card, and she began writing on this card. And she was writing 
letters, O, F, W, A, I, H, H, B, T, N, T, K, C, T, W, B, D, O, E, A, and so forth. And she passed away, and they could not figure out the code. And they tried every way they could. They studied decryption and everything. And it was impossible for them. And one after another of all of the cousins among the grandchildren, they just gave up. But they longed to know what their grandmother had been trying to tell them. And then when Facebook became popular, one of them said, I'm going to throw this out on Facebook. And within 10 minutes, the answer came back from somebody who had these programs that can interpret things. And they said, she gave you the first letter of each of the 66 words of the Lord's Prayer. It was the Lord's Prayer spelled out with the first letter of every word. And they looked, and it was exactly what it was. The Lord's Prayer, she had known all of her life. It was in her heart, on her mind, and she wanted to pass that down as the legacy for her grandchildren, but she only had the strength to write the first letter of each of the words. Now, I grew up in an era when I learned the Lord's Prayer very early. I don't remember ever not knowing the Lord's Prayer. When I was growing up, we also learned it along with our ABCs and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and everything else. We just learned the Lord's Prayer. And we said it a lot. In school, we recited it. At ball games, we recited it. In the locker room, before a game, we recited it. You went to a PTA meeting, they would have the, the stars and stripes and the star-spangled banner, and, and we would say the Lord's Prayer. It was a part of the culture back then. And now, I do not know in most evangelical churches in America if children are even memorizing the Lord's Prayer anymore. And it's very troubling to me. There are only 66 words to it, and those 66 words compress in prayer form all of the contents and the meanings of the 66 books of the Bible. And I want to look at this with you. I know that you've been in Matthew chapter 6. And so let's look at it. Luther called it the very best prayer. It's found in John 6 beginning with verse number, well, we'll begin here with verse number 8. And I'm reading from the New King James Version because that's closer to the traditional rendering of it. But let me read it for you. Therefore, Jesus said, do not be like them, referring to the Pharisees who prayed uh, with um, uh, hypocritical uh, recitations. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So think about the architecture of this prayer. What Jesus did was truly remarkable with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is the first prayer, uh, the first uh, sermon that we come to, the Sermon on the Mount, is the first sermon that we come to as we begin reading the four Gospels. So we say it is our Lord's inaugural sermon. I don't know if it was his first sermon or not. When you read Luke's Gospel, Luke says that Jesus, after he left Galilee at age 30, went down and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then he went out and he was in the wilderness with the devil for 40 days. And then he came back to Nazareth where he had grown up. He went into the synagogue. He took the book of the Isaiah scroll and he read from there and preached. And Luke would have us believe that the Lord's message in the synagogue at Nazareth when he was rejected would be his first sermon. I don't know that we actually know the chronology really well, but when you begin reading through the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount is the one that you come to first, and it is masterful. I mean, think about this. You have a young man who has never had any training in oratory or homiletics or in theology, nothing beyond the synagogue school in which he grew up in a very small place. He was a carpenter who dealt with stones, with implements. And yet the first sermon that he ever preached, of which we have record as you go through the Gospels, was the greatest sermon that has ever been heard or will ever be heard in the history of the world, it contains things like the Beatitudes and like the Lord's Prayer and like the Golden Rule and images that we use to this day in our everyday language. That was his first sermon. Now, I remember my first sermon, and nobody could say that it was the greatest sermon, that it was the worst that I think had ever been heard. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, which is very well structured, I don't have time to go into that, but you have the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus said, here is the way you should pray. Don't pray like this, but instead pray like that. Go into your closet, into your secret place, into wherever it is that you have your daily prayer time when you are private and alone, and here is sort of the way to pray, he says. Now, this reminds me every time I look at this of the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. You know, the children, if you know that story, are staying with their mysterious uncle in his mysterious house during the bombing of London and out in the country. And so they find this wardrobe, and when they go into the wardrobe, the inside is larger than the outside. I mean, there's a whole different world inside that wardrobe. And that's the way it is with our prayer closet. We go in that prayer closet 
maybe a very small place where we pray, and suddenly it's much bigger. We have access in a supernatural way to the entire world. And I like to take this Lord's Prayer and give it the architecture of a building, of a palace. I was just in England, and I visited uh, a particular manor house that is very stately, and, and the grounds are phenomenal. And, uh, and this reminds me of that. It's just a vast, I call it the palace of prayer, is the Lord's Prayer. And the first place that we begin with is, what would it be? It's the nursery. We go into the nursery, and we learn to say our Father, our Abba, our Papa. That's the way this begins. Now, what makes this so remarkable, as we've already told the children, is that this was totally new to the Jewish way of praying. Now, for us to say Father and to talk to God as our Father is something we've grown up doing. We don't understand how dramatically radical this was to the people of that day. When you read the Old Testament, you do not see people referring to God as their father. It's very rare. Read through the Psalms. Now, David was a brilliant theologian. He introduced many concepts out of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He introduced them into the language of the people through the Psalms. And some of those Psalms are prayers, but none of them are addressed to God as a father. They begin, O Sovereign Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, or God, they will say. But never. That was too familiar to call God your Father. And we have a few analogies in the Old Testament. For example, Moses said to the Israelites, Do you remember how God carried you through the wilderness like a father carries his son? So they had an analysis, uh, 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 an analogy there, and uh, we have the same thing in Psalm 103, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities you. But God was too high and lofty. He dwelt in the highest of the holy places, and they were way down here on earth. And to address him in family terms was something that they had never done. Isaiah comes close to it two or three times in his latter chapters, but that's it. But do you remember the first recorded words that Jesus ever spoke? His earliest words of which we have record, he was 12 years old. And he said to the rabbis, do you not realize that I must be about my father's business. And from the very beginning, he was very open about calling God his father. And it was shocking to people. But all the way through the Gospels, and especially in John, my father this, my father that. And they were stunned that he would do that. In fact, one of the charges against him is that he calls God his father, making himself equal to God. And they thought he was blaspheming. And yet, he had a unique relationship with God. He was the only begotten in two different ways. 
First of all, in his divinity, we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So as second person of the Trinity, he was God the Son. But then when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she became expectant with the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus became, in a human sense, God's only begotten Son. So he had a right to say, Father, this when he prayed, or to say, My Father, my Father. He was very comfortable with it. The amazing thing is that here in the first teachings that he gave in the Gospels, he said, You can do the very same thing. I'm extending the privilege that I have that is uniquely mine to all of you because you are coming through my blood into my family and I'm a son in a literal sense, but you're going to be literally the sons and daughters of God through the process of adoption, which is described to us in Galatians Five, so we are adopted into God's family. And knowing this and anticipating all of this, Jesus said, you know, if you want to call God Jehovah, Yahweh, God Almighty, those are all very appropriate. But when you want to, you can do just what I am doing. And you can say, our Father. Now we've gotten away from realizing how radical that was. It was blasphemy in those days. But how wonderful to, to understand that Jesus gave us the introduction to and the privilege of coming right into the presence of God and being able to say, I am talking to my Father. So that's where we begin. Now we go from the nursery up to the observatory because instantly we say our Father who art in heaven. So one is very familiar, the other is very majestic. One is intimate, the other is infinite. We go from, from our Father to suddenly recognizing that our Father cannot be contained by heaven or by the highest heavens. Nothing can contain Him. He is our Father who dwells in heaven. Now I think what this means in part is that when God created the world, he created it in two different dimensions. Maybe more, but two that we know about. And it is heaven and earth. It is the visible and the invisible. It is the material and the spiritual. And they're parallel to one another, but they are separate from one another right now. I think when the Lord comes again and he establishes his eternal kingdom... In Revelation 21 and 22, the two will merge together. But right now, we can see certain things in the material world. We can't see everything, except maybe through a microscope or a telescope, but, but we know there is materialism, that there is physical substances that we can see and that there is a, a seen realm in which we are living right now and we're operating and we breathe air and we need light in order to have visibility. And, but there is an unseen realm that is invisible to us, that is just as real and maybe closer than we think. 
and it's filled with angelic beings, both good and bad. It's filled with the, with the counsel of the divine that we can't see right now. And heaven is there, and God is there, and Christ is there, and the city is there. And we can't see it all right now. It is part of the invisible realm. But when we pray, we are coming as close as we humanly can come. You go into that prayer closet of yours, you are taking a step into the spiritual realm. You are going into the Holy of Holies, and you are talking in one realm to your Father who exists in another realm, our Father who art in heaven. Now, what an incredible thing that is to think like that. Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And yet through him, we can enter God's presence in prayer. As it says in the book of Hebrews, we can come with boldness before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. So our Father who art in heaven, we go from the nursery to the observatory, and there we also say, hallowed is your name. The word hallowed means holy and sacred and unique and spectacular and out of the world and otherworldly and such as nothing else is, not of the created realm, pure and sinless and stainless. Thomas Watson said, in this petition, we pray that God's name may shine forth gloriously and that it may be honored and sanctified by us and the whole course and tenor of our lives. So this, I think, tells us that prayer is, in part, a contemplation of God. We don't just rush right into his presence with no awareness of how marvelous he is. I mean, sometimes we all do that. Oh, Lord, help me. Um, we have a crisis, an emergency, and we just go right to our need. But ideally, our prayer time should include some way of recognizing how marvelous the God is, how hallowed his name is as we are coming to talk to him. The contemplation of the Lord is to know him, to be filled with awe of him, to respect his holiness, to enjoy his grace, to tremble at his purity, and to stand in awe of the sense of his majesty. In my own life, I often do this through the use of some great hymns. You know, when it comes to hymns and worship songs, there are two kinds. There are subjective hymns that talk a lot about us. And that's all right. In the Psalms, there were subjective psalms in which the psalmist said, Oh, Lord, I'm in a mess. I've got this problem. And, but then there are sub, ob, objective hymns and objective psalms that are mainly about God. And I found that those objective hymns, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. There is none beside thee, it says. Or praise ye the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, oh worship the King all glorious above. Hymns that are all about God, I can listen to them on my playlist or I can sing them. And they really prepare me 
for worship. Really, sometimes, to be honest with you, I put them on, you know, when I wake up. And I begin listening to them in the shower and as I get ready to dress. And then, then I'm ready with all of those hymns lifting me up to go to my little desk in my bedroom and have my prayer time and my devotional time. But that's one of the ways that I find it very helpful. Some of the newer songs. I mean, on my playlist, I've got, they're not necessarily a lot newer, but, you know, over the past 20 years, there have been some wonderful songs that have been written, like, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above. And one of my favorites says, We will exalt Him. The King is exalted on high. The songs that exalt the Lord are a tremendous devotional tool to help us to contemplate on the hallowedness and the sacredness of the name of God as we enter our prayer time. And so all of this, I think, is part of the observatory. We say, Our Father in the nursery, we go to the observatory, and we say, Hallowed be thy name, you dwell in heaven. And by the way, about God dwelling in heaven, when Jesus prayed, he never bowed his head and closed his eyes. We don't have that. Now, he would bow. In the Bible, sometimes they would bow. And there's nothing wrong with folding your hands and bowing your head. I just took my little five-year-old grandson to California. So in the hotel room at night and then at meals, I'd say, well, let's say our prayer. And he would instantly bow his head and fold his hands. He was so sweet. So there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus, when he prayed, would look up. He took the bread and he looked up to heaven and he blessed it. At the tomb of Lazarus, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. Because he knew that the throne of God was up there. And so he was at the observatory looking up and recognizing that. Now, whether in his humanity he could actually see through the clouds and see the throne of God there. Or whether he just knew he was praying in the right direction. I don't know. But there is something instructive about that. And it's a good prayer habit sometimes especially when we're outdoors and maybe in a beautiful place just to look up and sing our praises and offer our prayers and to remember whatever you're going through, the throne of God is always above your head. Remember that. No matter what's happening down here on earth, the throne of the sovereign God is always up above your head. Our Father who art in heaven, and then we go from there to the throne room and we say, your kingdom come. Now, this is a very interesting phrase because the Old Testament said that when the Messiah came, he would usher in his kingdom. And we read that over and over again. Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the Greatness of his government and peace will be endless and he will reign and establish and reign over David's throne and over his kingdom. So we're told the Messiah would establish a kingdom on David's throne and reign there forever. And you see that language a lot in the book of Daniel. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will trush all of those kingdoms, and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. 
And when John the Baptist came, his message was the kingdom of God is at hand. So obviously when Jesus showed up and they understood he was the Messiah, they assumed that he would establish a kingdom in Jerusalem that would allow the Jewish nation to again come to a place of prominence and to conquer the world and to have the kind of fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament they can always, they had always expected. And Jesus indicated that all of that was going to happen too. And then, of course, he died. Now, he knew the program. So on the way to Jerusalem to die, they said, Lord, we're going to Jerusalem. When you set up your kingdom, can I sit on the right and my brother on the left? And Jesus said, well, you know, you don't know what you're asking because I've got a cup to drink first. So Jesus knew what he was doing, but they didn't. But after he was resurrected, then it came to them. I understand now he had to die for the sins of the world before he established his kingdom. He had to atone for sin so that he could bring righteousness. So now that he has risen from the dead, he will establish the kingdom. And they waited and waited and waited and waited for 40 days for that to happen. And what was Jesus telling them during those 40 days? Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says that after his resurrection, he showed himself alive with many proofs and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And then he went to heaven. So what are we to make of this kingdom? Well, theologians have a phrase. Now, if you'll remember this phrase, the kingdom will make a lot of sense to you. Already, but not yet. Have you heard that? Already, but not yet. Jesus has two comings. He came the first time and he created a kingdom known as the church. His people scattered around the world and all of the nations, taking his message to the ends of the earth, and we are called a kingdom. The New Testament says the church is a kingdom of priests. It says in the book of Colossians that we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son, so we are the kingdom. It is already here. It is us. But after he comes again, he will establish the kingdom that is more in keeping with all of the predictions in the Old Testament. And for a thousand years he will reign from Jerusalem and show the world what it always should have been like. And that is the kingdom that will be geopolitical and is still to come. And so we say the two kingdoms are connected with the two comings of Christ. There is the kingdom of his church. There is the future kingdom. It is already but not yet. So Jesus taught us to pray about this. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, what are we praying for? I think there are three levels of meaning to that. One is eschatological. It has to do with the future. We are saying, Lord, hurry and come back. Lord, come back and establish that visible geopolitical kingdom that you're going to establish 
that will eventually usher us into eternity. Lord, Maranatha, even so, come, we are waiting for you. So I think there is an eschatological or a future-oriented nature, but it's also, I think, an evangelistic prayer. When we say, Lord, use those missionaries in Pakistan where there is so much persecution, and here is a pastor who has been abused, but Lord, multiply his witness, and may your church grow there and throughout India, and especially in Northeast India where there's persecution, and may your church explode in China, send revival. We are praying for the kingdom to come to the world right now through the spreading of the gospel. This is a missionary prayer, but it's also an everyday prayer. We are saying, Lord, I'm a citizen of your kingdom. I am here on hostile territory right now. I am a citizen of heaven, going to heaven, passing through this world. So, Lord, I have some issues now, and I need for the king to help me with them. And as you do so, I want to be your ambassador on this planet. So it is eschatological, it is evangelistic, it is every day. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Well, I'll pick it up there next week, but I want to close with just telling you something that goes uh, along with what we've already heard. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer and knowing it and these simple words, it is a prayer that we could pray every single day or we could pray on occasion. We can pray it together as a church, maybe not all the time, but it's, it's so useful in so many ways. We can establish prayer patterns in our lives that parallel the themes of the Lord's Prayer. But it can have a big impact on a person's life. And a good example is John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, of course. And John Quincy was just a child during the Revolutionary War. And his father, John Adams, was in Philadelphia. And so Abigail had the children up in, um, outside of Boston. And so war broke out. It was the Battle of uh, Bunker's Hill and the Battle of Breed's Hill. And the British attacked uh, there in Boston. That's where the Revolutionary War began. And, um, and Abigail took John Quincy to see the battle. He saw the whole thing as a boy not much bigger than some of the children here. They were on a mountaintop near their home looking down at the carnage, he could hear and feel the vibration of the cannons. He saw his loved ones and friends and neighbors mowed down. He saw the bloodshed. He saw the horrific nature of it. He saw horses go down. He saw the fires. He saw the city burn. He saw it all. He was young. He was traumatized. He was so traumatized, he never talked about it later. He could never bring himself to talk about it. When he got back home, his mother, Abigail, a wonderful Christian, she realized maybe she shouldn't have exposed him to all of that violence. But she said, here's what to do. Memorize the Lord's Prayer and just offer it every night as you go to bed. 
And he lived to be a very old man. Died in the National Capitol building. But for the rest of his life, all of his life, he said the Lord's Prayer every night at bedtime without failing. And it was the foundation, not the entirety of, but the foundation of his spiritual practices and his devotions. And it's what kept him sane and healed him from childhood trauma. So this is a prayer that is still very useful to us. We don't think about it as much as people used to. But I wonder if we could just close our service today by offering it together, if you know it. Now, when we come down to the part of uh, debtors or trespassers, let's go with debtors. But um, you can say whatever you want to, actually. But let's stand together, and I will lead you in it, and we will close out our service in this way today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give, for, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and happy 4th of July.